shortest one. I could have picked like Luke or Matthew. We'd still be like in chapter three, you know. You know how many sermons I could have got out of the genealogy of Luke or Matthew? Oh my goodness, there's like a ton of them. There's so many of them in there. If you had never looked at the genealogy of Luke or Matthew or any of those things, I encourage you to give it a shot. It is pretty amazing just to look through the history of Christ and see everybody that he is associated with, or blood kin to, as we say it in the country. But uh, he is associated with so many individuals, it's pretty neat to see all the bloodline of Jesus. Last week, we, uh, we, we were in chapter 8 of Mark. This week, we'll press into chapter 9 of Mark, and so that's where we'll begin at verse 2. If you want to go ahead and turn there, last week, we asked a question that, that is being asked of you daily. That question is, who do you say that I am? And it would seem, at least to me, that in every passage, this question is constantly being addressed. Who do you say that I am? Every passage addresses this scripture. In every passage, the scriptures make much of Jesus. And even as we cry out for proof, which we often do, God the Father is eager to tell the world and even show the world Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, he is eager to tell the world. If there was any question about who Jesus is before, God the Father is about to shut that down. Because today in our passage today, we're going to see the boldness of God. We're going to see the boldness of God. So let's look into Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let us make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone. And they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves. But they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Then they asked him, why did the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they've chosen to abuse him, just as the scriptures predicted. Let's pray. Lord, as we have read your word, there is nothing that I am going to say that is going to be more powerful than your word spoken out loud. Lord, it humbles me that you would use me today. And Father, even greatly so is that you would open our ears and our hearts so that we may receive your word as a seed planted. And may you water it and grow it. And, and, and reap it in due time, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So it, if it wasn't obvious who Jesus is, it kind of is now, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you agree? It's a little bit obvious who Jesus is. If you see Jesus 
speaking to people that you believe to be Elijah and Moses, two people who would have died hundreds of years before the disciples were even born. You know, they suddenly show up. Little, little bit amazing. Amen? So it's a little bit different. You ever, I've always wondered this. Have you ever wondered uh, uh, how they knew who Elijah and Moses were? How did they even recognize him? I can only assume that there was something heavenly at work here, especially since the entire countenance of Jesus changed before their very eyes. I mean, all of a sudden, he went from wearing a peasant's robe or a poor man's robe to this dazzling white robe. You got to love the New Living Translation, how it loves to embellish a little bit, right? It also helps when God the Father shows up in the clouds and audibly states who Jesus is. Hmm, I wonder who Jesus is. He is my son. Okay, because I didn't even see where that came from. Two dead people have appeared out of nowhere from the sky. I think it's obvious who Jesus is at this point. It's hard to deny it before their eyes. It's yet the question still remains, who do you say that I am? Well, God the Father just literally came out of the sky and said, Jesus is the Son of God. And not only that, it says he dearly loves him. I myself prefer the King James Version that says God was well pleased. In other words... It's as if God was saying, this is my son. I'm proud of you. Can I say that I like this kind of talk from God? Seriously, I wonder if he says this about us. This is what this passage really exposes, right? It shows that God can be pleased and even proud of his children. I'd like to think that God sometimes says, you know, this is my son, Jim. I sure am proud of him, right? Or I'm proud of this guy right here. I love how God reveals himself here because he doesn't have to. I think we take this for granted. He doesn't have to. If this transfiguration doesn't happen, it won't make Jesus any less the son of God. It won't invalidate his work on the cross. It won't stop anything. Yet God the Father is delighted to reveal his pleasure in Jesus before his closest friends. After all, isn't this who Jesus really took? And here we begin to see some great leadership points within this passage. And today this is what I'm going to end up talking about. The kind of these do's and don'ts that are worth our time to look at. And something that we should notice because Jesus, you know, he kind of sets the bar on leadership. I mean, he really does. He sets the bar on leadership. If he's doing this, shouldn't we be doing the same? Shouldn't this be practices in the church if he practiced this type of behavior? So the first leadership point I really want to bring out from this passage as we have looked at it is this, that not everyone gets to see the miracle transformation. Not everybody. How many disciples did Jesus have with him in his leadership circle? His deacon board was comprised of 12 individuals whatever you want to call them, his closest buddies. They're all, there's only 12 of them. And yet, from those 12, he only took three. Did you notice that he didn't explain himself and how he chose either? He didn't have some talk about how uh, he might hurt the other guy's feelings. 
if they don't get to go. It becomes obvious as we read more into the Gospels and even into the book of Acts that these three individuals pressed into Jesus more than the rest. They asked more questions. They tried as hard as they could to be as close as they could. They dared to challenge Jesus in ways that increased their own faith in him. After all, we've already read about how Peter beckoned Jesus to come to him. Peter walked on water. John would press in at his feet and lay against his chest. He did everything he could to be intimately close with Jesus. And James watched and listened to every word that came out of Jesus' mouth. And we see all this show up in the book of Acts as Peter becomes the great preacher and miracle worker. Funny, the man who saw miracles in Christ becomes the miracle worker himself. John becomes the great lover of souls and presses for disciples that what? Love each other. James writes what might be the best book on how faith interacts with works and how the mouth and the tongue should be handled. Listen, when I was a youth pastor, we made an annual trip to Padre Island. And this trip wasn't for everyone. It was uh, really only for adults and my student leaders. My student leaders were students who spent more time than most working on their relationship to Jesus. They worked hard to work in the ministry, whether it was through the worship team or whether it was through like cleaning up the place when the night was over. Whatever they did, they made sure they were at Sunday school. They would come every time the door opened to listen to anything they could about Jesus more than most. And it never failed me, though, that I would have parents that would come to me or contact me why their student wasn't going on this trip that I had scheduled for my leaders. And I would have to recite this passage as evidence of while they were, while they were part of the youth group and a part of what Jesus was doing in the youth group or at the church, they were not as involved as these student leaders were. But I also had to reaffirm them that just because they don't go doesn't mean that they're any less significant or any less wanted in the whole group. But can you imagine today Jesus having to deal with this mentality? What if he decided to take only the three and then the others complained that their feelings got hurt because they weren't even asked to go? We totally missed that here. You know, in all the years that I've studied that, the only people that talk about this passage like that are leaders. Because most everybody else never even pay attention to the fact that there was some that didn't go. Three people went up, nine stayed down. He didn't even ask them. We don't even get the conversation that takes place afterwards, which I love to say is the conversation of nothing because there's nothing to talk about. This is what I said is, and there's nothing else to talk about. If you're a parent, you've had that conversation with your child. Why? Because I said so. That's, go, that's all you need, because I said so, right? That's hard, though, when it comes to somebody else's kid, right? We totally miss this. But listen, here's the thing. This passage sits here as proof that God tends to use and even to reveal himself to basically this, those to whom he wants to. And sometimes that's you, and sometimes that's not you. God uses whom he wants. Some days that's you, some days not so much. Your job is to trust God in that <laughs> and not question God. Stay faithful to the cause. Trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. 
And I promise you that you'll have your special moment with Jesus too. It'll happen because he desires it, right? Jesus wants you to be where he is. He wants you to be a part of what he's doing. There will be, <clears throat> excuse me, a special moment for you. He said so himself. So we have to be patient in this moment just because God didn't pick us the first time. I often think about the passage in the book of Acts where they threw lots to see who was going to replace Judas. How would you like the, your ministry being decided by the throw of the dice? You ever felt really wanted then? That's not even like, you know what, because we liked all of you, we're just going to throw this dice, whatever it lands on, it must have been the will of God. Must have been the will of God. Can I tell you that every time we include somebody, sometimes we often exclude people too. That doesn't make them less important or any less part of the group of the whole. It doesn't. God chooses some to do whatever he wants to do with them. How many of you, you would love the ministry of Paul right up until the point where you got snake bitten, shipwrecked, hit with a whip? <laughs> or the, I remember the time where he had to run out of the city and they had to lower him down on a basket. There were times where he ran from the city naked. Like, we're like, I would love Paul's ministry. Wait, just the miracle part. None of the rest. None of the rest, right? Be careful. Maybe, maybe God not choosing you could be the blessing you needed. The next thing we see in, in leadership is really a don't. It's kind of a, out of the do's and don'ts, it's a don't. It's clothed in good intention, too. As Jesus transformed into this dazzling white garment and is being ministered to by these patriarchs of the past, Peter's mouth gets the better of him. Sound familiar? Golly, that like saying is like talking about my own life. My mouth gets the better of me. Peter decides that what's happening is so awe-inspiring and so special that they should build a memorial to all of it. The Greek translation here is really a better word. That instead of memorial, it's tabernacle. If you're in the King James, you, you see that word a lot easier. And as soon as he said this, we see the nature of the human heart. This is a big one, guys. Because it, it, it appears harmless on the front and maybe, maybe even a bit appropriate. I mean, it is an awesome moment, right? But it's really of the nature of the heart to want to glorify a moment. Hear me. This is when something awesome happens to us. And rather than, uh, 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 you know, uh, something like that happen, we, we say that's awesome. We should be saying that's awesome and just move on. But we don't. We try to hold on to it and sit in that moment for as long as we can. Now, pay attention here, guys, because there's a lot of churches that have tried to do this over the years. I've told this story that I'm about to tell you so many times now that every time I tell it, it sounds not real. But I love to tell it because it's true, because it reminds me that God loves me and God gave me a moment in which that would inspire me, that God would basically use me for his glory. There was a small church in Terrell, Texas. It was called Word of Life Church. The pastor there it was a very small church, maybe would hold maybe uh, maybe the size of this entire room. So I mean, and just it was set up with pews and and an old school look to it. And and this guy was about probably in his forties preaching, uh, early forties, and and uh, he uh, he was also doing the worship at the time. The pastor was, and a part of his family was doing the worship as well. It's like this big fast song. Some of you've heard this story before. It was a big fast song and. Everything is, is in this awesome moment where if you've been to a Pentecostal churches, when we do fast songs, we dance. We like to move around. We like to sweat. We like to do all kinds of stuff like that, right? We're those guys that paint ourselves up at the football game that kind of annoy you at times. That's what we are. And, and so 
<clears throat> as, as they're doing their thing, I, I decided to go without my family. We, we had, had little kids at that time, and I wanted to attend on a Wednesday night. And I was so hungry for God and so on fire for God. So I came in, and I sat at the back, and there was maybe like 40 people there. So it was all spread out. You know how like we never sit next to each other. You could take 40 people in 200 sheets, and we still try to like sit everywhere in the back corner and everything else, right? So it's all sporadic, and we, I, I come in, and, and as we're, they're sitting there going through this fast song, I hear the word, I hear God speak to me audibly, and he says, Jim, I, 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 I want to show you that I'm going to use you, that you're, this, you're going to know that this is my voice, and, and I'm going to use you. I want you to go right now and get on your knees in front of this church, in front right there, and this will be a sign to you that I'm going to put the pastor on his face. And it was an awkward moment. Because I thought, I'm talking to myself. And in that moment, I think I'm talking to myself. Uh, I tell myself, no, this is a fast song. This would be awkward if you get down when the tempo's going pretty quick here to try to make it all solemn. I would think I would be being a distraction, God. And then God says to me, you see the man in front of you. He will do it. And then I act like a hurt child. I go, God, you don't got to be like that. You don't have to do that to me. As if God was saying, well, I don't have to use you. I'm choosing to use you. I can use others. And so I get up and I go to the front. And in the middle of this fast song, I kneel down and I begin to pray. And I begin to just bawl my eyes out, really, and just forget about everything else. And I can't tell you when the music stopped. But when I opened my eyes, the pastor was laying on his face as if he had been taken out by the Lord. And so was the rest of the worship team. Even the drummer came off his stool. And if you know about drummers, they like their stool. <laughs> and all the older couples that like to sit during those moments because they're tired, I get it. They were also on their face. And everybody in the house was on their face. And when I looked up, it could have been from crying, but I like to believe it to be more spiritual than this. It looked as if smoke had filled the room. And I believe it to be the Shekinah glory even to this day that God's presence had entered in the room and that no man can stand before God's presence. And as quick as it was there was as quick as it was gone. And I remember the pastor getting up and coming to me and asking me, which is a very bizarre thing to do, is come up to some person who's come in your church. You don't know him very well, but you have to go to him and go, what just happened? What just happened in here? And then I have to, like, somehow, with eyes that are swole up, tell him, oh, God, just try to use me. I told him I wouldn't go. But... <laughs> that was a moment that would change my life forever. That was my Mount Transfiguration. Now, there are many churches out there, and there are many people that I have talked to, many, even you, that, that, that have the same story. But here was the one problem. Many of those people are still waiting on God to do it again. Many churches are still waiting on God to do it again like he once did. But here's the thing, guys. C.S. Lewis figured this out early on. And if you'd read his books, it's great. C.S. Lewis said one time in the books of Narnia, he was trying to teach seven and eight-year-olds this one truth that seems sometimes adults can't get. God never shows up the same way twice. Never shows up the same way twice. There can be only one Red Sea parting. It will never be in Egypt again. There is only one David and Goliath. Only one. There are 
so many miracles, but they are never done the same. Sometimes Jesus just spoke and the blind were healed. Sometimes he spit on their face. He could just speak to me. That'd be fine. But they're always different. You know why? Because God isn't a robot. God is not a biologist or a chemist either stuck in a formula. He doesn't subscribe to it. He can do anything and therefore he exercises his right to do anything. He chooses and he exercises all of his permissive will into whatever he wants to do. The problem, unfortunately, for so many people and so many churches is that they tried to build churches and they tried to build ministries upon those special one-of-a-kind moments. They want to sit on the mountain of transfiguration and never come down. But that's not how it works. When we do this, when we end up taking these wonderful God moments and making them into works of idolatry is when we end up worshiping the moment and not God. And listen, guys, God has never moved again like he did in that small church in Terrell, Texas in my life. And most likely I've come to grips with he might not ever will. But that's what makes that moment so special. So special. And so I cherish it. And I don't forget it. And now I take that and I go out into the world and I pray hard that God will provide a place so that others can have that special moment too one day for them. And that I might be the catalyst for that. Because I promise you, when that minister started that church, he didn't start it with the intention that there would be a guy someday that was going to come and have a moment in his church. But can I tell you, God used that man and his ministry and that moment to change my life forever. And if I would have memorialized that moment, I would still be in that small little church in Terrell, Texas. And I would have missed out on getting to work with some amazing kids here in Marble Falls, and I would have missed out on Mosaic. I would have missed out on what God wanted to do in my life, waiting on something that had already become the past. We must be careful making idols out of miracles when it is the miracle maker that's supposed to be worshipped. Man, this happens all the time. Those that you've been in church a long time, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about here. The Bible makes quick work out of Peter's heart here too. When it talks about, as soon as Peter says this, the Bible is quick to say that this was just the first thing that came out of his mouth. It exposed his heart, but it's quick to point out that Peter didn't even know what to say. Which, by the way, brings up a great leadership point. Listen, if you are young, you need to listen to this. This should be the greatest leadership point you take away from this if you are young. If you don't know what to say, how about keeping your mouth shut? I should have had parents be like, amen. How many of you tired of hearing about the gun debate? How many of you tired about hearing all the debates? How many, I'm tired of the politics. I just, I, I, if I could just like only, only get anything but news channels, you know how much my life would be easier? Turn off all the technology. Listen, turn, turn everything off and just isolate myself into the Word of God. You know what I'd probably walk in? Hope. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'd probably walk in hope because that's all I'd read was about hope and joy and peace and wonder. <laughs> if you don't know what to say, just keep your mouth shut. 
Because when you don't, your heart is out there for all to see. And if anyone gets this, it's Peter, right? If there has to be anyone in the whole Bible that probably struggled with the things that come out of his mouth, it's him. He is always being corrected. We just read, literally just a few weeks ago, just, I think last week, right? He just said that Jesus was the Messiah. That's a win. If I'm writing points, point. Peter, doing good, guy. All right. But then immediately afterwards, Jesus calls him the devil. Mm, take away that point. That's gone now. Peter's mouth. And it's not because of how he's acting, but because of what he said. Maybe it was after that moment, which was literally last Sunday for us. Uh, uh, and now here we are in this moment again is where the Apostle James got all his ideas for the power of the tongue. If you hung out with Peter, maybe you're like, this guy talks way too much. This guy puts his foot in his mouth all the time. I'm going to write a whole chapter on Peter. We're going to call it the power of the tongue. All right? James chapter 3, 3 through 6. Indeed, we all make many mistakes, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth, and a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. You know what we should do? We should create a social media site where you can use that thing and just light the world on fire. Oh, it's called Facebook. Where everybody gets to use their flaming tongue. To beat up and burn everything. I wonder if this is like in the rules, that, you know, in agreements. You ever see that when you sign up for something? Oh, check right here that you've read the rules and agreements. None of you read those things. It probably says this whole scripture right here. Remember that your tongue's like a flaming fire. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree, man. Let's go. Let's just get me, get me right to the deal. You know what I'm talking about. Seriously, I agree with a quote I saw the other day. We demonize technology because we don't want it to become accountable to how we use it. And he says this, technology isn't changing us. It's exposing who we already are. <laughs> Dangerously, we speak before we give any thought to the ramifications as to what we say. And just like that, everybody sees us for who we are. That little person on the inside that is all flesh gets a bullhorn into the real world through our fingers to the point that there are people that literally take the time to spell out curse words. Again, if you don't know what to say, and if it isn't uplifting or positive, you might just want to think of just keeping your mouth shut before it gets the best of you, revealing what your heart really thinks. A lot of good lessons tied up in this passage. A lot of good things that God's trying to show you. Their lives are on display so that we can learn what's right and what's wrong. Another great leadership point is that they went down, as, as they went down the mountain, Jesus instructed them not to tell anyone what they'd seen. And I'm pretty sure that means the other disciples too. Anyone, other disciples, that makes about sense to me. What happened to James, John, and Peter was special. But it was also their story alone. 
Only theirs. In leadership, whether it's church or business, you will find that there are times where you just don't get to tell your story. It's not anybody else's business. It's not your, it's not your place to tell them. For these three disciples of Jesus, this moment would remain theirs alone. This would be a moment where Jesus sees them, and it's enough. Jesus and us know, and that's enough. I don't have to brag to everybody else. I don't have to tell everybody else. I don't have to share that with everybody else. I don't share my testimony every time I talk to somebody. There's a lot of it that I'm not proud of. If there's a moment where I can glorify God in it, I will tell it. But it's not like there's tons of things in the past that I'm just so proud of. There's some stories that remain ours with the Lord. And here's the crazy, uh, here's this crazy moment with these disciples when you, you just want to, I mean, come on, this is an awesome story. I mean, we were up there on the mountain, guys. And this crazy stuff happened. And I know it sounds far out. I know it sounds like we ate some bad fish. But there, there were like these, like I think it was Elijah and Moses that were up there talking. And then all of a sudden they were gone. And his white robe is gone, and he's back in the regular robe again. And God came out of the sky and said, this is my son. That's some crazy-sounding stuff. That's stuff you want to tell people about. You know, it's like if you saw aliens, I'm pretty sure you'd be Facebooking that pretty quick. If you saw something that was impossible or something was crazy, you'd want to tell people. But listen, Jesus says, no. This moment was just for you guys. But it's not only moments like these, it's also a prerequisite for all ministry moments, both good and bad. Just as it works in this great moment, it also works when there's moments of injustice. As Jesus was falsely accused, he didn't say anything. He kept his mouth shut. When people say things about me or do things to me, my job isn't to run around telling everyone about some great injustice my job is to trust in the one who protects me, who guides me, and who takes care of me. I'm supposed to trust that Jesus sees me and that he can see any injustice that is happening to me. And since he loves me, he will take care of my, any issues or my issues that might arise. It's the same watchful eye that also gives us the miracle moments to increase and lift up our faith to believe that he is who he says he is. Oh, if he gives me a special moment, surely he'll see me through my darkest moments. Sometimes we just don't get to tell everybody about it, though. And that's okay. We, this is the trust part where we have to trust that God sees us. Trust that he sees you. If you pray, you already know this to be true. This is our last leadership point, and we'll close with this one. Special moments often create special bonds and friendships. While I served in the military, we spent a, 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 a many a night sleeping on the ground. Mike, you ought to remember some of this. We slept on with a poncho and a poncho liner because you didn't want to take a sleeping bag because it was heavy. And if it meant freezing, it was okay as long as I don't have to carry a big, heavy sleeping bag 15 miles. I will freeze with a poncho and a poncho liner. And here's the thing. We ate really bad food, right? Yeah. In combat, we would bust down doors. We'd never know what was on the other side. When I was in Somalia, we would take mortar rounds and grenades from kids who were just bringing in ordinance to exchange for food. I was telling a story the other day about how we, uh, we had a 55-gallon drum that we cut in half. And when we cut it in half, because we didn't have a bathroom, 
And so we took two boards and we stuck it over that 55-gallon drum and we found an old toilet seat that we thoroughly cleansed. And we put it on top of those two boards. And you know, the funny part isn't just that. The funny part is how we would get used to sitting there in the middle of the night with the bats coming in through the top of the building or in that both happening where bats are coming in and we're taking gunfire while you're going to the bathroom. And it's amazing what you can get used to in the military. Can I tell you, there's not a lot of people I can sit there and have that talk, conversation with and we really just laugh and laugh and laugh. You know, but you know who I can? Other veterans. Because they've been through it, right? We, we've had a special moment. There's things that we relate to because we've had that moment. Guess what? You know who probably talked more than anybody else? James, John, and Peter. You, you think they reflected on this transfigured moment? What they have in common? This little story that they can't tell nobody but binds them together like glue. This little, this little piece of Jesus that was this miracle for them that inspired them to go out and write and change the face of the earth. We, I endured all kinds of things in the military, and it's cool, but it bonded us together. It bonded us. And listen, in those moments, I'll be honest with you, we didn't recognize any of that because we were in the moment. But afterwards and years later, we were, we were bonded together more than just a shared experience. We were, like, grafted in because, you know, guess what? With, you know, Mike Sr. over here, I didn't serve with him. He served long before me. He was paying his dues long before I was. But you know why we relate? Because there's some things that we relate to when it comes to the military. He can understand things. And so not only did I, did the guys that I just went hiking with this last year, we actually served together and we bonded together, but all of a sudden now I'm grafted into something bigger. And guys that served 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years before me, they're my brothers. Here's the wonder of this. Here's where it gets better. So I joined the Marine Corps. And in the Marine Corps, one of the biggest things you have to learn in boot camp is Marine Corps history. Just like I'm sure in the Navy you had to learn Navy history, right? And there's famous guys in the Navy. It's probably guys that they talk about who are like awesome captains and all this stuff. In the Marine Corps, we have awesome guys as well. And, and everybody, ha every service has their like guys where they just, they talk about them as being, ours was Chesty Puller. You always did one more push-up for Chesty. And, and, and here's the thing is, I, Chesty Puller served in World War II. I don't know that guy. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I've watched movies about him. I've read about him, but I don't know him at all. Get, you know what happened? His victories became mine. I really wish that the Chris, that Christian church could get, get this. That means the, if I would apply that to church today, so that generation that came before me that I've been listening to, uh, forever talk about how revival was and how church used to be and how all this was happening and how when revival came back in the 50s and 60s and how the church was good. Listen, that gets to be my victory too. I'm a part of that. I'm a seed that's been planted, right, by another tree from, that started as a seed that was planted, by another generation that started as a seed that was planted. And, and I come from a long line of victorious church-going individuals. You see, I, I think I'm really the first one in my family to be a church-goer. But if I'm being honestly, that's not the way. That's not the truth. The truth is, no, I, I have a long history of church family. Oh, it, start, it, it started with a, a, a grandfather who was faithful to the ministry and joys, who, who really saw uh, uh, something starting to grow and began to just pour water on it. But can I tell you, somebody came to him. At a young age and radicalized his faith, right? And then somebody came to that guy and then somebody came to that guy. And just like the Marine Corps, even though I don't know guys two or three, four generations before me, I inherit all their victories. 
Because we share in this moment together. And we are bonded by Christ. It is the one common thread. See, veterans are not bonded by the fact that he served in the Navy, I served in the Marine Corps. We're bonded by the fact that we both served our country. We both have a desire and a patriotism to do something greater than just ourselves. And that's what bonds us together. As Christians, what bonds us together is our pursuit and passion for Jesus Christ. We are brothers and sisters bonded by a glue that's stronger than anything the military has ever seen or known. Amongst many of you now, I share in the moment of salvation. You know that moment where we realized the depth of our sin and we ran to Jesus. I share in witnessing miracles, amen? And maybe even the greatest miracles when God takes a heart of stone and he turns it into a heart of grace and compassion. I share in the Shekinah glory moments with you where God shows up and he decides to show out. Like last week. We can have some moments in here where it's quiet, where we pray for one another, and it's just a seemingly easy Sunday. Then there's those Sundays like last week where it was okay to linger, that we can see God working in the hearts of individuals. We see God doing something, God bringing outsiders in, becoming the insiders, amen? And I too will share with you, and we will share this with each other, and even the late Billy Graham, where Jesus will one day say, inner good and faithful servant. And this bond is strong between all of us. It's forged by our life together. And I think we all need moments with Jesus. Peter, John, and James were having their moment. And the funny thing about this moment is that in the middle of Jesus being transfigured before their eyes, their hearts were also being transfigured as well. And throughout the many moments in your life where God has pulled you aside where he has taken you aside and he's done something great for you. Every time he's answered your prayer, every time something kind has happened, all of a sudden when somebody has blessed you, all of a sudden when somebody's done something nice for you, in that moment your heart is being transfigured too. Because you've seen also something that you can't quite comprehend in your life. And listen, you too will face that Peter type moment when you'll want to just live in the miracle and never leave. Church, resist that. Resist that moment. Resist the moment of quit thinking about what can and start living right now. Resist the moment of thinking about what was and start living right now. Half the problem is we're so either concentrating on the past or the future that we're never here and now. So busy thinking about what can be and not thinking about what should be. We need to live in the moment and when the moment leaves, we leave with it. We don't stay in the moment. We resist it and we move forward. And you know what? We see what else God has in store. This was the manna for today. What is the manna for tomorrow? I'll find that out tomorrow. And I'll trust God for tomorrow. But for right now, I'm going to focus on today. For right now, I'm going to enjoy this moment. But when it leaves, I will enjoy the next one and not be idolized the previous one. You're never going to see a next one until you first let go of the previous one. To an older generation, I would say let go. I didn't say forget. I didn't say forget. Talking about your victories is a good thing. It builds your faith. I said let go. And to the younger ones, embrace something new. And I'm going to tell you right now, the younger ones, if you can't first embrace the old, you'll never have anything new. It's the way it is. 
I think one of the biggest headaches I have in the church is that the church is always trapping for something new with, and totally ignoring and totally uh, disrespecting that which has got them there. It's like every time I see somebody with a new translation talking about King James, I'm like, you know you're only defeating your own self, right? King James is what got us here, guys. You wouldn't even have a new translation, NIV or anything else that you're reading right now and enjoying so greatly if it hadn't been for the King James that got you here. Quit beating it up. That's like being married to your wife for a long time and just now complaining that she's ugly. Come on. She was beautiful at one time. Why is she beautiful now? She's always beautiful. She was beautiful from the time it started. Come on now. I should get an extra amen from there. Well, I, what, I, I, I know I'm supposed to sound all eloquent. I can't be a redneck once in a while. We have to keep moving on. We have to resist being stuck you have to embrace you have to also and you 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 recognize the moments and they're great but you don't memorialize them they're part of who you are and they're part of your past yes they are but they're going to be more of them will they be like that one no but they could be better and if you first of all don't have the faith to believe that they can be you're already missing it what we do is we move on and we have the ability to move on because we're not alone. We have each other. God puts them. There's no such thing as a young church. There should never be. A young church is probably going to be a dumb church. You need older people around so you, be, so you can be wise. People who lived longer. You know that the older people are less stressed? You know why? Because they've already lived through it. <laughs> you know they say the most stressed out generation is the 20 and 30 year olds? They're freaking out about everything. If finances get tough, they freak out. If anything gets goes, they freak out. They freak out about everything. Older generations like, yeah, we freaked out then too. We don't freak out anymore. Why? Because we made it. Somehow we like survived it. And so the, the idea is when anything, even like my parents right now who move around a bunch and are wondering what they're going to do or retire, they're, they're hardly, they, they rarely freak out about it because they're like, eh, we'll figure it out. We always do. We just keep on living and keep on surviving and we make a decision one day at a time. Because that's what experience in life has taught them. And I'm going to tell you, if you don't have that generation in your church, you're going to make a dumb mistake. You need multi-generations in a church. You need them. You need people that have experienced things that you haven't. You need it. We're not alone. We have each other. Our strength is in each other. Peter had James and John, and they all had each other. We have each other. And our job now is to move forward in the transfiguring love of God. Amen? Now let's worship him. Let's worship him and create a new moment. Lord, we just give you thanks for this moment where we can feel your presence. We can know you're here with us, where you lead us and you guide us. Jesus, I ask right now that you would break down every wall that is keeping us from going further and deeper with you, Lord. Lord, open our eyes to see the things that you would have us to see. To see people like you see people, 
to love people like you love people, to be broken for the ones who are broken and hurting. Give us ears to hear them, Father. Lord, we come to you this morning. Your people. And we say thank you. We pray that this worship would be pleasing to you.